And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Emily Yaffe, a member of the Board of Advisors of Persuasion. I recently wrote an article in Persuasion called What We Got Wrong and Right About COVID-19. In it, I talked to three distinguished public health experts. They are Monica Gandhi in Vinay Prasad of University of California, San Francisco, and Stefan Baral of Johns Hopkins. Each of them is an MD with a master's in public health. You could say they hold dissident views from the, quote, consensus of public health officials on how we responded to COVID-19. Our talk was far-ranging. We discussed how we'll know in the U.S. when the pandemic is over and how we're going to have to live with this virus because all of them agree we're not going to get to zero COVID. We talked about their concerns about the mass lockdowns and how this ended up making the rich richer, cosseting the comfortable, and leaving working people out to serve them and therefore more vulnerable. They all were very concerned about mass school closures. We know that millions of children essentially went without education for more than a year, and the consequences for the individual kids and society of this. And they discussed the perniciousness of noble lies. That is when public health officials mislead the public ostensibly in order to get them to behave more virtuously. Our conversation was wide ranging and we've edited it into a snappy transcript. I hope you find it provocative and enlightening. Emily Yaffe's piece called What We Got Wrong and Right About COVID-19 was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Sabrina Tavanisi. Sabrina Tavanisi is a national correspondent for the New York Times and a veteran foreign correspondent. She has covered countries from Turkey to Russia for the New York Times. She has also covered the Iraq war. Sabrina was on the ground on January 6th. She accompanied rioters during the assault on the Capitol. In our conversation, she gives a really vivid account of what that day was like, giving us a sense of what drove the people who participated in that assault. But Sabrina is also interested in the wider stakes of this political moment in the United States. As she puts it, returning from deeply divided countries around the world, she was shocked to see the extent to which her perspective seemed to illuminate the United States, the extent to which in certain respects, America was starting to resemble those deeply divided societies. Sabrina Tavanisi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Yasha. Nice to be here. So you are, I think, the only human being I know who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, um, <laughs> not as part of the great Trumpist attempt to, quote unquote, stop the steal, but as a journalist. Tell us about the day and your experiences. So January 6th was a very strange day, as it turned out, but it didn't really start that way. And 
I'd gone to actually each one of the post-election Trump rallies. There was one right after the election, if you remember, and then there was one on December 6th. And this one, I was kind of caught off guard by how well attended it was. I was thinking, okay, it's another one of these things, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. And when I got down there to the ellipse at probably around seven in the morning, it was... I mean, just people as far as the eye could see. And we're not yet talking about the people who stormed the Capitol. No. We're talking about the people who went to hear Donald Trump and other people speak to them. Exactly. Effectively, it was a giant rally. And, you know, as we know, in retrospect, there were people who had very specific plans about the Capitol, but most people didn't. I mean, most people had kind of, you know, rolled up from driving all night from central Texas and were sort of blearily stomping around in what was a very cold morning and very windy and very hard to hear Trump. And so it was like a big picnic. You know, people were happy. People were kind of had T-shirts on, hats on. It was cold. And the speech itself was packed and it was very difficult to hear him. So most of the people I was standing around had no idea what he had said. And they also had to go to the bathroom very badly because they'd been standing in line since 5 a.m. And at this point, it was like 1 p.m. and there were really no porta potties around to speak of. So as we walked toward the Capitol, which was the direction of the crowd. So the speech ended, you were at a great distance from Trump and the people around you, they didn't really know what he had said. What started the movement to the Capitol? At that point, did you think, oh, it's weird that we're going to the Capitol? Or did it just, it just seemed geographically logical? What were you thinking? Did you notice, oh, we're walking towards the Capitol, that's weird? Or at that moment, was that even a question you were asking yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. For most people I was talking to, there wasn't really a plan. But at some point before the end of the speech, some people started shouting, let's go to the Capitol, go into the Capitol, let's go to the Capitol, they're voting, they're voting, let's go to the Capitol. And that's something that you heard in the people around you. Yeah, I would say maybe a third, maybe less than that of the crowd still there listening at the end of the Trump speech. So most people actually had left. And they'd left because they couldn't hear Trump or because it had gotten cold or they just... All of the above, all of the above. They needed a bathroom, they couldn't hear Trump, it was freezing. And also Trump wasn't saying anything new. There were definitely people around me and I was surprised to hear this. I mean, the crowd was a lot of super Trumpers. That was who came. And I heard this one guy saying, that's it? We thought the truth was going to be revealed today by you. And it's just the same mm. old stuff? Like, what? Like, there was sort of this disbelief that you don't have the answer? There's supposed to be an answer today. And right. so, He's supposed to make some announcement that somehow yes, arrests the, this is going to be This is going to be the beginning of something big, important, new. This is going to be the answer to this weird purgatory we're in, which is like, we think we won the election, but no one's acting like that. And like, we have to change the channel from this. Anyway, some people genuinely felt frustrated by his speech. People start walking and I start walking with them. And I'm walking with an off-duty police officer from a county in Pennsylvania and his wife. And at some point, I see people coming toward me. By the way, just a brief interlude. Yeah. They know you're from the New York Times or... Yes, or you're absolutely. Just sort of, no, I, I tell and, them... And are they friendly? Are they hostile? What's the mood towards so you at that point? I would say that it's a little similar to how I experienced interviews in Russia in the 1990s, which is, oh, you're with the New York Times? Those guys are terrible. But anyway, let me tell you about why I'm here today. You know, people at rallies are very eager to talk to journalists who come to talk to them because mm. they're at a rally. They've driven all night. They, they have care about expressing their political opinions. Yeah, they yes. have something to say. And whoever you are, they want to say it to you. And I, I would say 
really in all of those Trump rallies I was in, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times someone said, no, I'm not going to talk to you from the New York Times. So I did not encounter anybody who refused to talk to me that day. Everybody was very talkative. And so I was walking with this off-duty police officer who came to attend the rally. It stopped for a little bit to talk to a guy who redid flooring in central Massachusetts and his friend who was an emergency room nurse. And I started seeing these people coming toward me who had wet faces and t-shirts. And when I came closer to them, I realized it was white. The liquid was white. And I was thinking, oh man, what is going on? It was milk that they had poured on themselves because there had been tear gas. gas. So I thought, oh my God, there's tear gas. This is, something's going on. So I broke Hmm. off from the police officer and I kind of trotted up to the front and saw... As you go to a party of Ford, there's tear gas, let me go towards the tear gas. It reminded me of being in, maybe not a great analogy, but but I remember in Lebanon in 2006 when they were having the war with Israel. As I was going in, I was going in from Syria and there was a long line of cars leaving because, you know, a war starting and you leave the country if you're a middle-class person. And I was in this car with a driver and a translator and we were the only people going in the other direction. And I remember the border guy was like, you guys are going in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so I get up there and the first thing I see is just, I counted them. I think it was about 12 unmarked police vehicles and vans with police in riot gear coming out, going toward the Capitol. And it was a little hard to tell what was going on. I mean, we were getting some alerts on our phones, but a lot of the service had been suspended. So it was intermittent. And, you know, that building is two football fields. It's huge. And it has all these nooks and crannies. And it's like the inside is this sort of Escher painting. I couldn't really tell if there was actually violence happening and if so, where it was happening. So you're saying, okay, there's tear gas over there. I'm going to go and see what's going on. And then I think we missed a step and we're sort of suddenly in the capitals. You just sort of walked in the direction of a crowd and you sort of found yourself in the capital. I mean, there wasn't sort of a moment of like, oh my God, I'm walking into the capital. Well, there was. So I'm walking in the direction of the crowd and I'm watching them react to these police officers. And so this is about probably a little bit after 2 p.m. And I'm standing essentially on the Union Station side and the Pennsylvania Avenue side. So I'm standing actually in the spot where the original break-in was, but I didn't see it immediately. I saw people pounding on the windows on the Senate side. One guy was saying, wake up and make the coffee. We're coming in. Um, There was another guy kind of like ogling the chairs and the ergonomic keyboards and the fancy furniture sort of saying like, oh my God, you know, look at how they live and look at how they work. But banging on the windows very hard. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is like not a good sign. The cops went by and then sort of disappeared into somewhere I didn't know. And I kept walking along this window ledge with the people banging and then turned the corner and came upon what we know now in retrospect to be the first break-in place, which was the sort of little crevice on the, I guess it is the northwestern side. It was a window that was originally broken, and then people from the inside broke the door, opened it up to the outside, and then people flooded through the door. And I was one of the people who walked through the door. I didn't see them breaking the windows. I walked inside at about 2.30 p.m., And at that point, it definitely did feel like a break-in. Like it wasn't sort of like by the time you got there, the doors were open and it sort of felt natural to stroll in. I mean, it felt like these are people violently breaking into a building and then you sort of followed them. So 
Yes and no. I mean, obviously, it had been a break-in because there was literally broken glass. There was water all over the place because people had been pouring bottles of water in their faces from the tear gas. There were people lying on the ground because they'd been tear gassed and they were trying to get their breath. There was a desk knocked over and broken. Um, So it was clearly in disarray and there was clearly no authority anywhere. So that, to me, as someone who had been in war zones for a long time, was deeply frightening because it felt like, wow, you know, (laughs) the rules have been completely suspended and no one is in charge and people are very frantic and hyper and pretty angry. And it's a crowd. And we know, you know, that crowds can be very unpredictable and very dangerous. But when I went inside, the original people who broke in had already moved on. And the people I was standing looking at, there were a lot of women. There were, you know, people kind of of all ages. There was one police officer and everybody desperately needed to go to the bathroom. So everybody was swarming this police officer (laughs) saying, hey, where's the bathroom? Where's the women's room, men's room? And the little police officer was like, that way. And at some point I said, should you be kicking them out. And he just sort of gave me this look like, what do you want me to do, lady? It's one of me. And, you know, it was a couple hundred of them. And a couple of hundred people desperate for a bathroom, apparently. Desperate for a bathroom. And so, you know, there was this very long line for the men's room that I saw. Also, lots of water on the floor. Not quite sure what from. But I was in a little sort of anteroom of one of the senators. It wasn't the main office of the senator. And there were a group of people in there you know, kind of sitting around. It felt to me a little bit like a party in high school with like the bad kids, you know? It was like somebody was like ripping this Chinese lettered scroll off the wall. Somebody else stole a framed photograph of the Dalai Lama. People were kind of like making fake phone calls saying like, ha ha ha, I'm going to call this senator or that senator. Oh man, look at this office. It's so nice. Oh, they're nice. I mean, the whole atmosphere generally was menacing because quite simply there were no authorities and they had broken in. But it wasn't as though they saw me and they said, you know, let's get rid of this journalist. (laughs) So I ended up in the crypt, which is the place in between the House and the Senate. It's not the rotunda, but it's this sort of columned, round, low-ceilinged area in between. And I'd say there were maybe 200 people in there when I was there, and it wasn't packed-packed. And I'd say of those 200 people, most of them were standing around just kind of chewing the fat, taking selfies. There were a couple who were very hyped up. One older man, I'd say probably in his 50s, who was sort of running around just shrieking. And at the time that I got in, probably only, I counted them and I can't remember, but I'd say there were a handful, you know, five to seven police officers. So there was really nothing that they could do. They just sort of were standing there watching this. And I went up to one of them at some point. He looked to be South Asian. He was actually shorter than I was. And I said, shouldn't you be pushing them out? And he said, oh, you know, we're just letting them do their thing for now. (laughs) He just seemed completely terrified. And, you know, they had this feeling that we've actually vanquished those people in power. And that feels so good. That like we came here and we've taken over their place. We've pushed them out. We've made them have to bend to us. And that is like, I feel like a million bucks. And it was just that feeling of like, we are the powerful ones for this afternoon. And that 
is enough, you know, that like, and, and this was, you know, again, Yasha, this is like me in this one particular place in this one particular moment of the Capitol on that day. As we know, there were, you know, people were killed. I mean, there were incredibly violent scenes in different parts of the building. I have a photographer friend who was shooting for not the New York Times, a different agency. And he actually got stuck in that. I don't know if you saw the New York Times, January 6th, um, montage. Basically, there was body camera video from a police officer of people pushing through an area that was kind of directly where the inauguration was going to be, a doorway. And he said he raised his arms up to be able to shoot with his camera because he wanted to get a picture. And it was a melee. It was a small space and it was a big, intense, packed crowd. And he said after he did that, he started to panic because he could not get his arms back down and he thought his ribs were going to break. I mean, there were parts of the building where very violent things were happening. I was not in one of them. And I was able to talk to people a little bit and sort of just really chronicle what I saw going on. But I don't mean to minimize the violence because it was, in retrospect, quite savage in a lot of the places, particularly against the police officers. Yeah, I think that the role of the police and the discourse about them is one of the sort of very complicated things about January 6th. The impression at the beginning that they had somehow been complicit, which I think has turned out to be wrong, that really a lot of them were very scared. and Yeah, I mean, my impression was they were completely terrified. I think that the people who were consuming what the New York Times was writing that day very much kind of were in the mood to think that the police were complicit. But my experience with it was they were shit scared. There were not enough of them, you know? And what do you do? I mean, it's one of those things where people think that it's like a Hollywood movie and one soldier is going to hold off 40 people. It never happens like that. They don't operate like that. That's not how they work. There has to be enough of them to have backup so that they don't all themselves end up dead. They need a critical mass of people in order to be able to safely control a crowd. And they didn't have that. And the people who were inside were doing their level best to not have anybody end up dead. You know, I mean, fundamentally, that was what it was about because it was clear that they were overwhelmed. So how do we, you know, be in this pretty volatile, dangerous situation without people dying? And I think actually it could have been much worse in that respect. So how do we think about the broader significance of January 6th? Because I have to say that I very strongly go back and forth on it. Clearly, a storming of this central or one of the central places of American democracy by a crowd of people whipped up by the outgoing president intent on stopping the certification of an election result is a very, very extreme event. And it's one that I imagine for good reason is going to be remembered for years and decades and perhaps centuries. I've said in the past that one of the very strange and small silver linings may be that it cements Trump's appropriate place in history, that many of his abuses of democratic norms and rules would have been very complicated and difficult to explain to first graders 50 years from now. But he encouraged his people to go and storm the Capitol is something that they will understand. And that in some strange way is a good thing insofar as it ensures that Trump will be remembered appropriately and that hopefully we learn the lesson from the Trump years. The historical memory will be clear and not muddied. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Now, at the same time, there is a sort of way of thinking about January 6th where it's sort of a terrible security failure. It's a terrible failure of having enough police there. 
it's obviously a testament to how divided the country already was. But sort of if they just had 500 more policemen and if they just had a sensible security concept, the whole day seems like it would have passed as a blip, right? So there's this very odd way in which it is a hugely significant event. But, you know, if only a bunch of people had done their jobs, I don't mean the actual cops on the day who I think couldn't have done much more, but if they'd had more backup and if some of the decision makers had helped them more and they just managed to keep off that first wave of people trying to break in, it would have likely ended up as a strange footnote in the history of Trump and Trumpism. And I struggle with how to get those two halves of a narrative into my head together at the same time. I wonder what you think about that. I mean, in some ways, does it matter? I talked to a lot of conservatives about January 6th, including people who went to January 6th. So I'm still in touch with five or six people. I text with them on a regular basis. They insist that the way that we need to remember that day was exactly how they experienced it because they were there. And the only thing they saw with their own eyes was walking inside, looking around the rotunda and walking out. They say, I didn't see any violence. And I say, okay, so does that mean that you think that there was no violence? And they say, no, but like, this is how I will remember it because for me, it was peaceful. And for many people, it was peaceful. And then I argue with them saying, okay, maybe for you it was peaceful, but clearly in retrospect, the thing that matters for the history books and the way that everybody will remember it is that these people died and that there was violence in it. Like when violence happens, that makes a chemical reaction that changes things. It changes everything. And you were part of that. So that is the thing that I think is important, that you were part of this violent event, whether or not you actually did violence, but this was a violent event. And I just think it was... uh, I'm still processing it, I think, because... It was something so far out of my experience. I mean, I had been in war zones and been used to thinking about violence and extreme political divides in lots of different places, but not in the United States. And I tell you, Yasha, when I walked through that door and started crunching around on that broken glass and started filing to an editor in D.C. who was taking the feeds from us, and I said, their feet crunched over broken glass— And she wrote back saying, holy shit. And I said, yeah, holy shit. Like, this is happening here. And my brain didn't actually know how to process it. It was like I was having such an adrenaline rush that I couldn't understand it. I was just kind of doing what I would do at a bombing, which is look at my watch, note down the time, write down exactly what I was seeing in front of me. Look at my watch, note down the time, write down exactly what I was seeing in front of me. Because Otherwise, I would just lose all track of everything because my adrenaline was going so quickly. I mean, I could not believe that this was happening. You know, now, you know, of course, all these people are being prosecuted and it seems kind of like this sort of weird, embarrassing afterthought almost. I mean, certainly you talk to conservatives who are sort of mainstream people and, you know, there's a lot of sort of whataboutism. So, oh, you didn't ask us any questions after the Floyd protests last summer when half of Portland was burned down. You know, this is what people always bring up. 
But most people don't say, oh, that was a great thing. Most people say, oh, some bad apples. And, you know, they went there for a rally and they didn't really go there to storm. And the whole thing is pumped up by liberal media, et cetera, et cetera. And it was bad that people died. No one wants to attach themselves to that. That's something that everybody separates themselves from. I guess like you, I do think it does sort of cement the historical memory. And the fact that that could have happened and could have been so violent and so savage to me just said, we are there. We are in that place. And we could be in that place at any moment again. And just because we are Americans and we are in the United States does not make us immune from something like this. And I always kind of thought in the back of my mind that we were. I mean, and that might sound sort of naive and sort of cheesy, but it's like this couldn't happen in our place because our political muscles are just very developed. You know, we have these institutions that we've always gone around the world and, you know, criticized Russia and Turkey and every country I've ever lived in about you have to get your institutions up. What about your court system? You cannot have a court system where you just pay $20 to the judge and get off. That does not work. <laughs> it's like, wow, our institutions, I mean, they held during this era, but barely. The whole thing made me think really differently about my country. What it reveals about the conditions of possibility is, I think, a very important point, which is to say that, yes, of course, you can say, hey, if they have 500 more cops, that they would have passed relatively without notice as, you know, one more piece of relatively low-level political violence that we've had a lot of in the last years in the United States. That's true insofar as it goes. But that's probably true about all kinds of moments that have precipitated lasting and serious political violence around the world. I'm sure you can go to the beginning of many civil wars and say, well, if only this person hadn't done this and that person hadn't done that, and this unfortunate way in which these three people clashed in this public square wouldn't have happened, perhaps actually you wouldn't have gotten to the beginning of a civil war. And that might well be true in particular circumstances. But the fact that three people coming together in an unfortunate way can set off a civil war, tells you something very important about that country. And perhaps in the same way, January 6th is both a sort of freak accident caused by a bad security concept and that could easily have been avoided in certain ways. And at the same time, it just shows something very, very significant about just how dangerously off the rails the country has gotten to be. And, you know, how radical in some ways the grassroots really are. I did a story about two police officers from Rocky Mount, Virginia, who were arrested for participating in January 6th. And I had talked to a number of local grassroots activists, conservative activists and politicians, and one Republican Party leader in part of the county. And he was at January 6th as well. He was in an office building visiting a senator or something. And he said he sort of caught the beginning of it and then he didn't see the tail end. I don't know if he went inside or what happened, but he was very interesting. I said, you know, so you were there that day. You're part of the party. How do you understand it? And he said, well, I'll tell you. When I was driving back, and it's about a five-hour drive to Southwest Virginia, I had the radio on and I was listening to the proceedings in Congress. And I was hearing how the Republican leaders were talking about what had just happened. And they were saying it was bad. And they were saying it was wrong what had happened. And I thought to myself, you guys have no idea. You guys have no sense of just how angry 
people are out here and what that was and how proud in some ways they felt of it. How they felt that, as I said in the beginning, for once, we were the powerful ones. He sort of associated a lot of positive emotions with it. Now, this is, of course, before really we have all of the retroactive body cameras from the police officers and we really knew the full extent of the violence. But, but you know, he was making the point that no one that he knew saw it as bad. I think from late summer last year, and then certainly early fall and very much after the election, this whole idea, you know, that the election was stolen and would be stolen, that, that there would be massive fraud, was this kind of giant ugly lie, I will call it, that Trump dumps into the middle of the political landscape. And then suddenly we all have to kind of deal with. I just was struck by how much that ended up creating the weather if you will, in the country after he invented that, that everybody was completely fixated on that. And I realized, wow, on one hand, you'd think, okay, whatever, some election, who cares? Most people don't care about politics. It's no big deal. But people cared. This is my sacred right. And if I don't trust it, I don't trust anything. And if I don't trust it, I don't believe that any of these political leaders are up there legitimately. And that is genuinely a huge problem. And he just like made that out of thin air. And at some point last fall, I felt like I could often find something, some way to connect or to understand or to find something that I can empathize with, with pretty much everybody I was interviewing. And I was spending a lot of time with people who were, you know, quite sympathetic to the president. But after that, when they started saying, oh, the election was stolen... I just started having lots of arguments with people because I said, you know, I can't agree with you on that. It wasn't. I felt like our realities really completely diverged at that point. And I didn't know how to get it back. And I didn't even know how to have conversations because I can't fake myself. I mean, I need to have something of a real conversation with someone in order to really get somewhere with the person and understand something about what makes a person tick. But I couldn't, on a base level, agree with the asking price to get into the conversation. I couldn't do right, it. Right. So it just became extremely uncomfortable. You couldn't do a sort of neutral thing like, oh, interesting. How do you think the election was stolen? Why do you think? Yeah. Exactly, um, exactly. No, I disagree. I think that's wrong. It wasn't stolen. And so mm -hmm. it just got weirder and weirder as the months went on. And we just came to this point where we saw the country and what was happening in very, very different ways. So you spent a lot of time as part of your reporting beat with grassroots activists on the conservative side and so on. You know, that sense that we can't trust any of the system and that justifies radical action, like, for example, storming the Capitol. Does that remain as burning nearly half a year into Biden's presidency as it did during the transition and when Trump had a bigger platform to whip that feeling up? Do you feel like that has become the new normal in American politics and will stay with us for the foreseeable future? Or does it feel like Trump being out of office and being a little bit less central to public discourse is starting to make it subside a little bit? I mean, I fear from everything I'm seeing, but it's more of a form of the latter. But how do you think that feeling is going to play out and how much is it going to be actually influencing our politics? I think that it's still very much there. I think that Trump being out of the White House has made a difference. I think it's less 
someone had the nice analogy of the horse in the hospital. You're not afraid that the horse is going to show up in the emergency room and stomp on the patient. I think that the heatedness of it, because he was so good at stirring the pot, has gone down a couple of clicks. But I don't think that the underlying anger and frustration with both the political system and with, you know, these perceived kind of cultural bossiness of the left, I don't think that has changed at all. In fact, I think that has this dangerous new thing, which is called elections are stolen by Democrats and we can't trust any of them. So I think in some ways it's gotten more dangerous for the overall system. But I, I certainly don't think it's gone away. I suppose it's natural to ebbs and flows of it as politics is more or less central to the moment, right? I mean, of course, it must be more intense at election time than it is in between elections. But I suppose it sounds as though when the next election comes along, it will be as intense, if not more intense, than it was in 2020, which is very worrying. So it may, as we're recording this at the beginning of July, when there's no imminent big election, it may be a little bit less intense. But that, I suppose, is not particularly comforting. Yeah, you're right. When the transfer of power is about to happen, that is the dangerous point, right? That's certainly the case in other societies I've been to and covered. So in that sense, you don't have this sort of fever pitch of kind of politics and who's going to run things and is there going to be a war. But the fact that we got so close before is just, to me, says we're in a really dangerous situation and we don't see things remotely in the same way. I mean, we don't have much common space at all. And so how do you go forward in a society like that? I don't know. I was just on the phone with a very thoughtful conservative guy from Richmond, Virginia, in his 60s, voted for Trump, didn't love him, certainly was not any part of January 6th. But, you know, said, look, I feel like Every time I try to adjust in the culture, the goalposts are moved and suddenly I have to adjust much, much farther. And if I don't, I'm a terrible person, I'm a bigot, I'm a this and I'm a that. And like, I'm tired of that. There is this deep frustration on a lot of parts of the right. And certainly, you know, there's only a very small proportion of American society that would be inclined towards doing violence. But I think that the tribal dynamic and the divide that has developed is pretty dangerous. So you're somebody who has spent much of your career as a foreign correspondent living outside of the United States. You spend a lot of time in Russia, in Turkey, sometime in Lebanon and other places. And when we talked a couple of years ago, I think, you made a really interesting point to me that coming back to the United States, you suddenly felt like your experience of covering these deeply divided societies gave you insight into the United States. So the United States suddenly felt similar to those societies in a way that it hadn't done when you were growing up here. What lessons can we take from our politics in these deeply divided societies? And how can we make sure that we have the appropriate empathy for our fellow citizens who are on the other side of a political divide without thereby either agreeing with everything they say or excusing the most reprehensible actions, certainly when it comes to something as extreme as January 6th? I guess I'll answer that through my own kind of personal growth as a journalist. I moved to Russia when I was 24 years old, and I started in journalism when I was 26. And I didn't really know very much about the way the world worked at that point. And I feel like I kind of went out into that society, speaking very good Russian, my Russian was very fluent, without very much humility and with a lot of arrogance about who they were and who they were supposed to be and how they were supposed to get their act together. 
And so I remember, you know, traveling to these kind of little provincial towns and I'd be writing about, you know, an aluminum plant or an oil company or, you know, a local election. And I remember thinking and kind of writing in this way, you know, guys, the widget factory is never coming back. I mean, I know everybody wants the widget factory because that was what was comfortable and safe, but that was a communist thing and communism is over and you really need to get your act together. Why don't you just go out and kind of invent something? Go out and build a business. Go out and, you know, rearrange your life in your town in a way that like will make you prosperous and more like us. And so I'll just fast forward to now, you know, or even in 2010 when I first came back to the United States, I'd been gone for more than a dozen years. And I started talking to Americans in also provincial places, and I realized they were saying, oh, if only the widget factory that was here in the 70s and the 80s would come back. If only it would come back, then all of our problems would be gone. And, you know, there are certain, those people are responsible for our problems. And if only, you know, and I, I realized, oh my God, it was the same thing. It was the same dynamic. And part of that was economic collapse Part of that was, you know, extreme lack of trust in government and in each other. And then, of course, another parallel was the disinformation that started to spread, I think, in Russia quite early and very virulently. I mean, every person you would talk to, every cab you would get into, it would be, you know, Gorbachev is actually being run by MI6. Everybody had a theory of kind of why life was so messed up and who was responsible, who was to blame. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, this is just a bunch of tinfoil hat stuff. This is crazy. These people were in the Soviet cave for 70 years and they kind of got a little wacky in there. They didn't kind of modernize with everybody else. And then I, again, more recently in my own society, people say, oh yeah, the election was stolen. Absolutely. You know, Biden has basically been kidnapped and there are all these people around him who are actually making the decisions and pulling the strings. I mean, I realized we are absolutely not exceptional in any way. I mean, we basically have exactly the same problems and exactly the same group dynamics and exactly the same divides. And in a way, it didn't matter that we were richer and more developed. And that's pretty sobering because now we're stuck. I mean, how do we get out of this situation? No one on the right I'm talking to even thinks that Biden is kind of a conscious individual and the elections now are going to be really fraught because there's been this kind of poisoned pill injected into them by Trump. And I guess in my mind, I can't actually get myself to the place where I can imagine organized political violence in the U.S., where there's like, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking of Iraq during 2003, and when that country descended into civil war, you had groups that represented in some ways the sects and the political parties having violent militia-type wings. I can't really see that in the U.S., but then if I squint a little bit and think of it as a, just a real kind of impressionist painting, I can kind of get there. I don't know. It's hard because I went back and forth during the Trump era saying, I talked to so many people who don't care about politics at all. It's not their thing. They're not interested. They never watch the news. They're repelled by it. No, thank you. And that's most people you talk to, you know? So I felt like I spent part of the time writing stories saying, ah, people don't care about politics. None of this matters. You know, it's you people in D.C. who are obsessed over, you know, Trump and all that stuff, but otherwise it doesn't come up. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, you don't want to be the person who in the 1850s goes around and says, 
guys, you know, ordinary people, they don't give a shit about slavery. It's just not important. It's not a big deal. It's like no one's talking about it. It's like you elites in Washington, you know, because at the end of the day, it doesn't take that many people to make a war and to make violence. And once violence starts, as we know from other conflicts, it begets other violence. I mean, once people start having dead relatives, dead friends, it's very difficult to stop because the middle class leaves the country and, you know, people are just incandescent with rage and with hatred. And that is a chain reaction that once it begins is very difficult to stop. I think that's a very, very important point. I share the instinct to say, look, when you actually look at the public policy preferences of the average American, they're perfectly reasonable. I mean, I agree on some counts and disagree with others, but on virtually every important issue, you have majority or plurality opinions of Americans advocate for perfectly decent things. And the country is not, in fact, all of that divided on those. One example is that a majority of Americans believe that police violence is a real problem and that we need to find ways of holding bad cops accountable and changing policing methods. And also, by the way, a majority of Americans believe that we need a very effective police force that combats crime and that getting rid of police and defunding the police is not a great idea. So where the elites in Washington have two very, very different frames, actually most Americans see a lot of consensus on this kind of issue. And you can go through a million different topics and come up with a similar kind of relatively reassuring account of there is a lot of consensus in the country. And most people don't think about politics all that much anyway. You know, they barely know, let's say, who the Secretary of State is. There's certainly a huge majority of Americans never watch Fox News, never watch MSNBC, and never watch CNN, and never watch anything. They don't read the New York Times, they certainly don't read Persuasion. And perhaps all of that is reassuring, right? Because it shows us that why should this society, which cares much more about Monday Night Football or what's on Netflix, end up in this form of political violence. On the other hand, of course, I happen to have in my mind the way in which a dear Croatian friend of mine describes her childhood, which is, we all loved each other, you know, nobody had any problem with each other in Yugoslavia, you know, we had friends from, you know, every part of Yugoslavia. It was just for politicians, you know, like, we all loved each other. And I think there's something slightly naive about her description of that situation. But at some level, I'm sure she's right. At some level, a lot of people in 1988 in Yugoslavia got along perfectly fine. And while I'm sure there was some real ethnic hatred even then, for most people, that wasn't something that was particularly important in their daily lives. But once it was exploited by the political elites, and once it was politicized, and once it became a question of fear and security and hatred, very, very quickly, the whole society was consumed by it. And so that is a very disturbing thought about where America might go. Again, that's why I think January 6th was so disturbing to me. Because it just showed that it is a human condition. <laughs> and we are not immune to that. Political systems can descend into this, and so can ours. And we came so close to having it be much worse, honestly. And again, it's still there. I mean, I think that political leaders are incredibly important. I mean, I think in the days after January 6th, it was actually very difficult to talk to people about it because I think people were kind of a bit stunned and not really agreeing on what it was and trying to kind of process it and trying to figure out, okay, what are Republican leaders saying about this? I mean, quite literally, what is the party line on this? 
so I think that there was that kind of suspended moment right afterwards where everybody was kind of scratching their heads, but it settled into what we now know is basically it wasn't really condemned by the Republican Party. And if they're not condemning it, that's a big problem, right? I mean, that leaves us completely undefended and unprotected. Should there be another very skilled nationalist leader who wants to scoop up that stop the steal stuff and use it? It is a white hot weapon, I think. And, you know, it doesn't really feel so hot now because we're very far from, you know, the big election, which is the presidential election, but it will heat up and it will be there. And the question in my mind is, you know, who are the leaders who will be there in 2024 and kind of carrying that torch forward? When I wrote about the police officers, I spent a lot of time with a young man who was part of a militia movement who went on January 6th. And I asked this young man, this young militia group man from Southwest Virginia, okay, so Trump is gone, say he's out of the running. I mean, is there anybody in Congress you like? And I asked him about Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who'd been voting not to certify the election and had been quite kind of on the Trump side with all of this. And he had no idea who I was talking about. So I don't think that any of these guys really are household names at all. And I don't really see any of these guys having the skill and the ability that Trump had. So I don't know. You know, I don't think it really happens without a leader. But then again, you know, as my colleague and friend who grew up in Alabama always reminds me, you know, we have had an authoritarian political system in this country for a very long time. And it was the American South. And there was not one uber leader there. It was a small grassroots local thing where there were a bunch of local party bosses and mayors and governors. And so I don't know what form this takes. Does it need a Trump? Well, it seems to me that you need probably free conditions for mass political violence. And I'm slightly making this up on the fly. And then in 2020, perhaps one and a half of them were fulfilled. But it's imaginable that three of them might be fulfilled in 2024. 2028 or 2032. So the first is very deep polarization. That can be ethnic polarization, religious polarization, but it can certainly take the form of partisan political polarization as it does currently in the United States. The second, as you're saying, is a political leader who is whipping this stuff up. Now, I think that's the condition that was half fulfilled in 2020. Donald Trump clearly was whipping it up, but as we know about him, like in every other area of his life, without any very concrete plan. So that's why I would say, you know, he wasn't actually in a systematic way trying to use paramilitary troops to stop the handover of power. That I take it as in part why some of the people you spoke about at the beginning of our conversation were disappointed, but they were then very expecting Trump to come and say, here's the plan, guys. But he never quite had a real plan. So I think that condition was half fulfilled. And then there's a third condition which is a constitutional crisis, right? You have to have some split within the institutions, which makes it non-obvious which way different parts of the state apparatus are going to go. And thankfully in 2020, in part because of the real performance of the American judiciary, including many judges that were appointed by Republican presidents, including many courts that were heavily staffed with conservative judges, but this wasn't an opening because actually the lawsuits were all dismissed. It became very, very clear who the rightful winner was according to the rules of the system. And so that made it very hard, for example, 
for uh, you know an army commander to say, well, I really don't know who my commander in chief is. I'm going to go with that guy over there. I think the fear for 2024 is that a, uh, as you've described very convincingly, the extent of partisan political polarization will remain similar to what it was in 2020. So that condition will still be fulfilled. The second question is, well, who on earth is the 2024 Republican nominee going to be? And will they be the sort of person who might, even if they lose the election, claim that the election was stolen as Trump did? And might they, if they do that, even go one step further in really trying to plan disruption of peaceful handover of power in a more concerted way, in a more strategic way than Trump did that? Very difficult to know whether that condition is going to be fulfilled, but it certainly doesn't entirely look out of the realm of possibility. And then the third condition is why I think I ultimately worry more about the state-level laws, not about voter access, but about voter certification that are being passed around the United States. There's many bad voter suppression tactics that we should absolutely be, be concerned about, but it is really the laws that allow elected political actors to say, we do not accept the outcome of a result in Arizona, and we are going to certify that Republicans won here, that raises the possibility that the third condition of a real constitutional crisis might be fulfilled, where different institutions start to come to different conclusions about who the rightful president is. And that, to me, is the real horror scenario. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And I wanted to ask you for a while, actually, where do you think this is going? And that is certainly the real weak spot, that it's changing state legislatures, which, by the way, Democrats did not manage to capture really almost even a single seat in state legislatures in the election. I mean, Biden won, but it was a complete blowout for Democrats on the state level. We're about to have redistricting right now because we have the 2020 census. I mean, the Republican Party is very, very, very well positioned for lots more real complete control of state legislatures in large swaths of the country. So that does feel to me like, okay, you know, if you want to sort of imagine a dangerous scenario for the United States in an institutional crisis, that certainly seems like that could be the direction of things. I mean, it seems hard to imagine, you know, a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley or anybody really who ends up being, you know, the Republican president in 2024, if there is one, organizing a militia on the Senate. I mean, I still can't really get my head around that. That is just, you know, we are not Iraq. We are not Lebanon. On the other hand, maybe there's a sort of free form group where lots of people sign on and they, you know, end up being kind of defending the country, defending the democracy, and they have guns and they're willing to come. And there's a bunch of winking from the side going on from a political leader. I don't know. But I felt like interviewing people after the election and about the election, about the quote unquote stolen election felt like okay, this is really like now a ground up look at authoritarianism. I mean, what does it look like when people are okay with having someone just steal power? And, you know, of course, when you look at it from their perspective, they're not stealing anything. You know, they care about democracy. They care deeply, in fact, so deeply that they got up off their couch and they're not like their loser friend back home who's just playing Fortnite. And they drove all the way here and they want to make their voice heard because they care about this country and they care about the direction. And if my sacred right of my vote was stolen, I don't know. I'm willing to do just about anything. I mean, that was how people were talking on January 6th. 
You don't have people walking around with I am authoritarian uh, tattooed on their forehead. So that's certainly not how they see it, right? They see a terrible injustice having been perpetrated on them and they're trying to right the wrong. And how do you fight that? So I was going to ask you that question in conclusion. I love this exploratory conversation, trying to think through these topics together. I'm well aware that you're an excellent reporter. You're not a pundit. You're not a think tank scholar. But are there any things we should do as a society on the level of legislation, on the level of how we treat our fellow citizens, on the way of what kind of political activism we should make? Do you have any ideas about what conclusion you've come by reflecting on these things, about what action we need so that something like January 6th won't be repeated? You know, I guess I would say just try to have more conversations with people who are not part of your political tribe. And I feel like that's kind of an easy thing to say and a really hard thing to do, particularly now that, you know, our society is segregated in a way that we just don't rub into people who are unlike us anymore. But that is something that I think is absolutely critical because even though you might disagree with a person's political beliefs or even at times find them unpleasant, unpalatable— they are a fellow citizen, you know, a person. They have kids like you. They want good schools like you do. We do have things in common. And to sort of, you know, the social psychologist would tell us we need to find the things that we do have in common and go back to those things and try to focus on those things. And those things are not politics. I think talking about politics is not helpful. And we will never agree on it. You know, I did a story about um, rifts in families during the election and kind of what had happened after the election. And pretty much to a person, everybody who really tried to kind of bring up Trump or bring up, you know, their mother's Q addiction, I mean, that's obviously pretty extreme, but left in a worse situation. Talk about, you know, remember the ways that, that your dad loved you when you were a kid, you know, remember the things that you have in common as Americans, that we can sort of try to sort of rebuild some of that glue, you know, because it feels sort of very thin right now, but we do have things in common. And that's not just sort of a platitude or a silly superficial thing to say. We really do. And we need to remember what it means to be Americans together. So I would say definitely that a friend has written a very good book called High Conflict. Her name is Amanda Ripley. And her book really thinks through what happens in societies when you reach what she calls high conflict, say, you know, in the Middle East, um, these conflicts that go on and wars that go on for years and years and years. And she's done some really interesting, hard thinking about it in different parts of the world. I highly recommend it as the slow, hard, kind of boring, honestly, work of stitching ourselves back together. But she has a lot of answers in her book, so I strongly encourage it. Well, I want to second the recommendation of that book, which, as it happens, I reviewed for your newspaper. Oh, fantastic, Yasha. I didn't realize that. <laughs> and I had Amanda on this podcast to talk about the book afterwards because it really was a fantastic book. I, I did not know Amanda before. The New York Times is very careful about who gets to review whose book. But I was really impressed with the book and really enjoyed my conversation with her when I had her on the podcast afterwards. So thank you for that recommendation, the plug for the previous episode of the podcast. And thank you so much for the work you do and for your insights today. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sabrina Tavanisi. Really great to see you, Yasha. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod 
at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.